everyone, welcome back to ES250 Intro to African American Studies. I'm Dr. Cox, per usual. And this week we're thinking about the art world, which is a really difficult thing to talk through. It's interesting to be in this space where we're not taking in artwork together. Um, I think I had originally thought about this day as a field trip where we could go look at the new Carrie Mae Weems exhibit at the Schnitzer Museum. And I think that it's a weird kind of thing to talk around versus to really experience. I don't know how many of you are into art. And I use the term into art loosely because I don't claim to have any kind of art history or a, a great critical eye in terms of art. I kind of have a very visceral, either I love it or I hate it kind of feeling about most art. Um, but I do find it interesting to be in art spaces, which are typically you know, very white clinical walls that kind of allow us to take in what's happening in between the frame. But I also think about the whiteness of art spaces in terms of when I'm in spaces, typically, the you know, I'm in spaces where there are other Black people and there is Black art, more so than we've seen in a very, very long time. Um, but I'm also struck by the fact that a lot of times, these are exhibits and art museums that are run by white people that are secured in many ways by black folks. And I say that in terms of the folks that watch and make sure you don't touch the art in every room. They are overwhelmingly black people. And I don't really know when the art world decided that black people would be the security folks within art museums. But I find that regardless of the city or country that I'm in when I'm taking in art, um, there is a way that marginalized folks are watching this artwork that is um, in many ways, largely reflective of an upper class white uh, population that the art is designed for or represents in a particular way. There are obviously a ton of exceptions to that, and we'll talk about a few of them today. But I want to think about that when we think about the ways that the art world is generalized as a white space, even as we know there are so many black artists. Um, the spaces that are privileged as peak, you know, art spaces that are these very beautifully curated, highly touted exhibits and, and curators are typically within these spaces that are, are designated or are discussed as white that have been typically very hostile to not only black artists, but largely how women have been portrayed in art as well. Which is why I thought it'd be interesting to look at this Jenna Wortham article that's from the New York Times and thinking about what it means to sit down with these three artists that are black women um, and, and think about like why museums are kind of wildly disarming. There's a vulnerability I feel in, in art spaces. Sometimes I want to cry when I'm looking at art. Sometimes I get really angry and sometimes I'm just kind of confused or like sure that my little, you know, my little niece could have done the same thing, right? So understanding what the barriers to entry are for art is not always about kind of my, my uncritical eye or the ways that I take in art, but also what it means to understand um, what art is supposed to do or, or how art is supposed to make us feel. I'm getting really philosophical here, but I'm struggling really to think about what art, and I'm speaking specifically about kind of visual art. Um, performance art is a very jarring space for me. We'll talk about that when we get to Picasso, baby. Um, but what it thinks, you know, thinking about these shifts since the 80s and 90s where Black art was largely excluded from these top art museums and, you know, overlooked by these so-called top curators. Lorna Simpson in the piece says that it's, quote, a moment in the making, acknowledging that there have been all these other trailblazers that have made her and her counterparts that are interviewed here by Jenna Wortham really able to, to benefit from that work, from that activism, from the interrogation of why these spaces are so white and so male. 
Amy Cheryl talks about wanting to portray everyday blackness. And I think about that in terms of not having to have this um, really strong political aesthetic, like the, the idea of black people being worth preserving through art is enough of a political statement. She kind of wants to think about the everyday um, blackness, what it means to paint just an average person that doesn't have to be a, a major historical figure or um, isn't kind of a scene of black death, which you know is often kind of a theme of black art and what that everydayness kind of affords for us. She recalls getting asked in a panel why she doesn't paint white people. And, and the artists all kind of laugh and talk about how they've been asked a similar question in one way or the other, which is not unlike, um, as is referenced in the article, the question Toni Morrison got about what it means to focus on and privilege Black lives in your work. The artists in here note that, that white artists aren't really asked why they only paint white people. And so it's a really curious question to ask. You know, given that we, we create work through our own positionality, the best work, I would argue, is where we're kind of really digging into who we are um, and letting the artwork speak for where we see the world and how we see the world. I love this quote, quote, if I can't pick my own ideal, then who am I? This is Amy Cheryl talking. Who am I to offer up a figure into art history that doesn't look like myself, end quote. She says, it comes down to painting the work that I want to see exist in the world. And I think about uh, this idea of interiority and quiet um, that's kind of brought up in this piece. And there's a couple of books that are referenced and what it means to try to reveal externally kind of this interiority feeling of blackness um, and what it means to be read always through the lens of being in the case of these um, artists of black women artists. They can't just be artists. And so all of their work is kind of filtered through this lens of, well, this has got to be a black woman thing. The example is, is, that's given is uh, the wig exhibit where um, the artist is, is saying that they're thinking about the wig exhibit through kind of like the ways we put on gender, right? This idea anyone can put this wig on, the way that wigs have a very specific kind of uh, resonance in terms of thinking about something like race or gender or ability of illness even, right? There's this history within wigs, but it's funny that it, you know, funny in a not funny way that's collapsed to just being about black women's hair. There can't, you know, there's a way that it cannot have this universality that these artists are saying the black experience has these very universal nodes and ways of thinking and being that while culturally specific and, and understanding their position, also has meaning and understanding and resonance for all of us. And what that means in terms of constantly being pigeonholed and told that your work is about or just for one group of people, um, rather than having this larger connotation and understanding that can be kind of distributed across the board. The Mitter piece behind Basquiat's defacement, Reframing a Tragedy, is a very different piece. In the piece, we get this idea of the lives of Chadria Labouvier, who's the first Black woman to organize a solo exhibition at the Guggenheim in New York. She did this in 2019, so we're still making a lot of history in terms of first. And I followed her on Twitter for a while, um, not knowing a lot about her history, but knowing that she was always bringing these really interesting things about Jean-Michel Basquiat to the forefront and knowing that that was kind of her area of research. She focuses on defacement, the death of Michael Stewart, which is 
a piece that is really centered um, on police brutality in terms of the way that Michael Stewart, who is a, not only a graffiti artist, but an up-and-coming um, visual artist in general that is apprehended by the cops in New York after being caught tagging in a subway and is then battered, bruised, beaten by these police um, to the point of death. He later dies at the hospital. Basquiat, who knew Stewart, was friends with him, um, was really traumatized by this experience and ends up, you know, painting this uh, piece called Defacement um, on a friend, Keith Haring, uh, on Keith Haring's wall. And Keith Haring later cuts the, the drywall out where this piece has been, you know, drawn by a very distraught Basquiat and um, has it framed like in a very kind of you think about like kind of historic Renaissance art, like this massive, beautiful frame and is hangs over his bed um, until Keith Haring's death. So defacement is really put in conversation with um, the Michael Stewart work that we have um, so far we had in his very short life. And Stewart's work is put in conversation with other Basquiat pieces, other artist pieces who mourned Michael Stewart and um, drew him, painted him in a particular way. La Bouvier is really a great example of what happens when um, you have to be the first in this space. And much of her experience in curating this exhibit was about what it means that there are very few people of color in art spaces and even more so black folks in spaces and even more so black women that are in charge of curating these kinds of things. She says, quote, if I didn't review something, that meant no person of color looked at that document or process. And certainly it felt at times that there was an expectation that I would just be grateful to be in the room, end quote. And a lot of that surfaces later on. She talks about her experience and like constantly having to go back and follow up and kind of feeling overlooked, even as she's the curator of this very important solo exhibition. And what happened after is she felt usurped as curator when things like a digital audio guide and other accompanying content were created and cleared without her oversight. She was left out of the deinstallation process, so much so that her actual ID was, was deprogrammed. And she was also left off a panel held by the Guggenheim directly tied to exhibit, which is pretty much if you gone to an exhibit that is about um, an artist that is not currently alive. It's cur typically a curator is a, a key voice in that. You know, I think the most key is if there's a living artist, you want to get that artist and the curator and someone from the um, either the history that's being covered or from the museum to kind of be in conversation. And, you know, for her, it was this kind of affront to an exhibit that she'd really been curating in her mind and her heart for her entire life and, and really just now getting able to see it come to fruition. And so I'm thinking about what these pieces mean in terms of a larger conversation to be had about the art world. And there are a lot of small collectives and moments and places that all kind of come into this larger understanding of exclusion, um, of appreciation that's starting to happen. I think the, the telling thing in the Jenna Wortham piece is Diddy paying over $21 million for um, a Carrie Marshall piece, right? Or thinking about um, Carol Walker's sugar baby exhibit in the domino um the old domino sugar factory in brooklyn new york and thinking about what these large pieces that are starting to give um space for black artists and how black artists are working outside of the museum paradigm and creating new spaces and new ways of being i think is really interesting 
I think I think about the Picasso baby, uh, the performance art piece that is Picasso baby, Jay-Z's um, visual to accompany the song. Really interesting. I My relationship to watching this for the first time was really bizarre because um, it was debuted, it was premiered um, on Bill Maher's show. And I had randomly, someone had given me tickets to sit in on the audience for this show. And when I found out Jay-Z was going to be there, that was kind of like the pull for me at the time. And watching Jay-Z come up, he sat in, him and Bill Maher, they show the, they show the performance piece. It's just over 10 minutes, as you'll see. And then we kind of get to decompress. And I get so uncomfortable. Performance art makes me uncomfortable in general. But there's a lot of like cringy moments for me in watching this. But then later on, I have this moment of feeling like really important to have witnessed that. And I, like seeing how proud Jay-Z was of being able to move into an art space, take it over, bring his friends. I love the idea of him shushing them at the beginning. And then it's like, then he's like, turn the music up, right? What it means to invade the space of the art world, the pretentious atmosphere and kind of make it kind of a joyful space, I think is a really interesting kind of provocation. And then I started thinking about rap music as a certain kind of performance art, because I do think rappers perform a sense of self. Um, We talk a lot about, you know, one of my favorite performance artists, rappers is Rick Ross. I think that there's a way that rappers put on a persona that can be definitely considered performance art, but isn't kind of given that same lens or weight or respect. And so what it means for a rapper to enter the space, both in terms of Picasso Baby or when you watch the Apeshit video, seeing Beyonce and Jay-Z take over the Louvre um, in Paris, I think is a really interesting way to think about high and low culture, this highbrow, lowbrow aesthetic, what it means under something like postmodernity, and what it means for a Black couple or a Black rapper to enter the space and, and really take it on as, as his um, or theirs in the case of Beyonce and Jay-Z together. So there's something that continues to resonate with me, what it means for Jay-Z to both bring his friends, kind of bring the hood out, and then also have Marina Abramovich, who's just an incredible performance artist. I just really think about um, the way that when Jay-Z says we're artists, we're alike, we're cousins. This idea of disrupting, but also aligning with a larger aesthetic is really something that resonates with me. So I'm interested to hear from you. What you think in terms of the art world, what you think about it mean, what it means when hip hop meets art. Another example I'm thinking about is someone like Swiss Beats, whose large um, impact in the art world has been felt in terms of not only his patronage and buying art, as well as what it means for him to also be in conversation um, with artists and building collectives um, with artists. So I'm going to leave that there. Um, have a great one. And we'll talk next time about the impact of literature, African-American literature on African-American studies and African-American culture as a whole.